Hello, caregivers. Welcome to my podcast. This is a place for helping professionals and personal caregivers to share openly and honestly about the true hardships of providing care to others, while we also talk about sustainable solutions to self-care and personal wellness. My name is Amanda Rochelot. I am a registered social worker and a compassion fatigue specialist, and I am committed to helping the helpers. In this podcast episode, I interview an old friend of mine, Troy Leving. Troy is a massage therapist and founder of his business, The Sensory Approach to Manual Therapy. I was definitely overdue for a catch up with Troy. And so since we were going to do it on Zoom, I thought we might as well record it and share it with you. And so we cover a lot of ground. We're all over the place, but I guarantee it's all pretty interesting. At least it is to me. And so I hope you enjoy it. We did talk for a really long time. So I divided this conversation up into two separate episodes. You'll find in the first episodes, uh, we get to hear from Troy and he talks to us about um, the sensory approach to manual therapy and his approach in um, treating pain. We find all of these interesting areas where our work intersects and we discover what we have in common, particularly around principles and approaches. And we discover interesting areas where we see things or have learned things a little bit differently. We end this episode with our thoughts and reflections on the importance of self-awareness for all individuals, but especially for helping professionals. That leads us into the second episode where we continue to explore self-awareness. And that leads us into a conversation about vulnerability and accepting ourselves, our whole selves, including what we consider our challenges, or our weaknesses, and acknowledging all of those parts, and maybe even seeing them as our strengths. Troy gets real with us and shares lots of personal examples and stories of his own life and how he has been embracing his whole self as well. And we just share our thoughts from there about just owning our lives and overcoming shame and even reducing our risks for burnout through self-awareness and radical acceptance and compassion. So I hope you enjoy this interesting interview with Troy and tune into the show notes for uh, all of his contact information so you can uh, hear more about what he's doing um, in manual therapy. Enjoy. Hi, Troy. Hi, nice <laughs> to see you again, Amanda. Yes, it's it's, nice, nice to see you, nice to hear time. your voice. It has been a really long time. Uh, I will definitely say that um, even though it's been a really long time um, since we've really, really had good long chats, um, you're one of those individuals that could go years, decades, in fact, without talking to, and I'll always feel connected to. And Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, right? I totally, I totally well, I'm glad relate. you feel the same way about me. <laughs> totally really. I, I think about it all the time. I think about the times where oh, I should reach out to Amanda and Al. It's been forever since I talked to them. And I'm thinking, I, it's just like, I, I, I'm sure if we were in person and just like we are right now, it'd be like if we were just hanging out yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how quick um, it just, that familiarity comes back. But that being said, there's so much that I don't know about you right now, but <laughs> everything that you're up to, I get the, um, you know, social media angle of it all. And, and I, you know, I'm watching from a distance going, wow, that Troy is doing some awesome stuff. And I really uh, appreciate uh, 
uh, the work you're doing, at least from what I can what I can see. So um, before we dive into our our interesting conversation, let's just uh, start off with what are you up to right now? Um, tell us a little bit about yeah your your approach and your professional life. Yeah, so uh, well, I'm really grateful to be here. I'm thankful that you have me on. I'm excited to talk about um, what it is that I do, and I'm excited to interact a little bit more with what with what you guys do because it's so interesting as well. Uh, I'm a massage therapist by training. I've been doing massage for almost 20 years now. I was trained in Colorado, and I lived there for 16 years with my wife. Um, and uh, we moved back to Quebec in 2018. A perfect time to move pre-pandemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least you made it and, there. <laughs> yeah. And then um, yeah, I've been a, a continuing education instructor for manual therapists since 2012 with the Kinesi Taping methodology for an organization called the Kinesi Taping Association, which your listeners might be familiar. It's often that colored tape you'll see on athletes and things mm-hmm. like that. But Seeing it on athletes is because they're on television. Most humans who wear it are non-athletic or not not athletes on the professional level. Um, and then in two, uh, what, it's been eight years now. So uh, that would have been 2012 or 2013. I started getting really interested in uh, the sensory system and how it relates to manual therapy. And originally my interest was purely uh, massage therapy related, manual therapy. Somebody comes in with low back pain um, I want to figure out where their low back pain is coming from and essentially how to treat it so that they can walk away pain free. But over the past eight years, the more that I've delved into the sensory system and as it relates to pain, the more I've begun to understand uh, a different uh, or gain a different understanding into what pain is. Mm. And that took me down a really big rabbit hole that most of the uh, medical industry is also traveling down right now, which is so much research around pain therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the more I started looking at pain therapy and uh, how chronic pain affects our lives and people's lives, I started shifting into uh, the sensory system and the neurological system of habituation and memory and long-term potentiation and essentially neuroplasticity and how it is that we as therapists interact with our clients and patients to move them away from pain because that, mm-hmm. that's the ultimate interest. Um, and in the process, uh, I've become a published researcher in the process I've taught globally in the process I've created my own course um, that I've taught uh, all over the place and been fortunate enough to work with in the past 50, 20 years, I uh, work with high-end Olympic level athletes to travel the gold, working with professional mountain bike teams and soccer teams and NHL teams. Um, yeah, I've, I've had a very blessed career and I'm very fortunate. Mm-hmm. And one of my best experiences that actually has had the biggest impact on where I am now with the sensory system and how it relates to people's chronic pain and their past was in 2017, I traveled to India with an organization called the Little Kids Foundation. And we worked with children's, uh, children, really under underprivileged children for a full month in India, which was a really intense experience. But in the process, um, we were interacting with kids sometimes for as little as 15 minutes. Uh, I remember we were at this one uh, college in uh, Varanasi and I think in three days we saw close to 3000 children. I'm not mm. sure on the exact numbers. And we were only a total of 40 therapists. 
And so that's a lot of kids. You don't have a lot of time. And so we, my brain started shifting to, okay, I've got the least time possible. What's the greatest effect I can give on this child and the family that will have the most long lasting effects mm-hmm. um, as the child progresses and ages. And so it really, it really made me much more interested in the inner workings of the brain and how that really dictates most of our, most of our behavior, not only around pain, but just around stress and how stress manifests as pain, but also how positive and negative stress. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really where I am now. And, and now I'm actually about to start traveling and start teaching again, which for me personally is, is exciting and stressful. I'm, I'm excited to teach because it's been, you know, a year and I, I canceled, I think a total of 22 classes in mm. 2020. Um, and I was, uh, going to be teaching in Bermuda and Ireland and uh, there was interest in Germany and Japan and and India and so it's 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 fearful to think of traveling again but it's exciting as well at the same time yeah absolutely so many mixed feelings I can really relate to that for sure Um, well thank you Troy for sharing with us a little bit about what your professional and, and life journey has looked like for the last little while um, I have all sorts of ideas, things I want to ask you and, and, and chat with you about, but I want to start with just something that you just brought up, um, something that I can really uh, actually relate to quite a bit. Um, so many experiences that I myself have also had in the last you know year and a half since the beginning of the pandemic um, in, in um, you know, having to, to, to cancel life a little bit and and so the things that I really really enjoy and I had you know was um 2020 was going to be a big year man I had goals I really was feeling so confident in uh the the trajectory that I was on in my business and how I was going to help people and I was thinking big and it all came to a screeching halt and a little ways into the pandemic I noticed anger in me. And I'm not an angry person. (laughs) And I was behaving in ways that were so unusual. And I, um, what actually came up for me was my body started to deliver messages that I was familiar with, um, because of my history. And, um, and so the body started telling me you're stressed. And then I started to look at the, the stress of the pandemic, the, the anger that I was experiencing. And the day that I named it grief was when everything shifted for me. I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I'm grieving the things I didn't get to do. And I started naming them, like all of these canceled events and all of these plans that weren't going to be fulfilled. And, and that was the shift to, um, working through some of that stress and magically, not magically, but (laughs) coincidentally, my body was like, ah, thank you. Thank you for doing that work now. It's tricky because not a lot of, not a lot of people who are not entrepreneurs who have created a business from nothing will understand what it's like to be on the cusp. Right. And then have it taken away from you. Yep. And the, you know, like people talk about having your own business as having a baby. Like, yes, it's not your child. So it's not the same. If your child were to die, it would be much more heartbreaking than a business failing. It's a very different experience. Mm -hmm. And yet 
the love and passion and energy you put into it is almost more personal than your child because it is an extension of who and what you are as a personality and as a being. Absolutely. And so when you get it snatched away from you, very similar to me, 2020 was a breakout year. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it is It is heart-wrenchingly it uncomfortable to experience. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what else was coming up for me while I was listening to you share was how I can also relate to um, having a little bit of a shift in our practice in, in how we help people um, throughout our careers. So my connection to that is that early on in my career, I was trained in social work and uh, developed um, most of it, you know my clinical skills um, early on. And um, I was helping individuals uh, early on in my career with uh, substance use disorder and severe addiction, um, moderate to severe mental illness, lots of folks with uh, stress and trauma and um, as a result, uh, you know, it impacting their health and causing a lot of pain, both physical and emotional. And um, in my role was to provide talk therapy. Um, that's what I did. And yet going forward, I always had this sense that I was missing something. And it was actually in my own personal experiences that started to uh, shift my thinking. Um, and approach with talk therapy. So anyone who's ever done uh, any of my workshops or heard me speak before knows that I'm pretty open about telling my own story of my, uh, what I now call my burnout journey. Um, and so, you know, lots of factors involved in that. But one of the things I noticed the most at that time was how much pain I was in, how much discomfort I was experiencing, and how many symptoms, physical symptoms I was experiencing, they were actually a result of stress. And I started to make that connection more and more in my own life, the impact of my mental state or my psychological health on my body. And along the way, I started to learn to speak body language. I had never done that before. And in fact, my body had been shouting messages to me for a really long time. And I had been ignoring them. I didn't understand that, in fact, my body could speak to me through pain, through discomfort, um, through illness, and that these were these all had messages to them. And in my own journey in understanding how to speak my own body language, how to listen to my body, how to can make those connections between what it was going on uh, mentally and emotionally, and how that impacted my physical health. Through my own story, I started to look at my clients and go, whoa, I am totally missing the mark. All of my training around talk therapy didn't really address what was going on in the body and how if I could help them understand that, that connection, that I might be able to help them even more. So yeah, I think at that point, I started to explore alternatives to talk therapy or ways that I can integrate other practices into our talk therapy. And that really include a lot of mind-body work, a lot of inquiry about physical pain that I had not really done before. 
And I developed new skills in training. I actually, one of my favorites was that I trained in something called AccuDetox, which is auricular uh, acupuncture or acupuncture of the ear. It's a five-point protocol um, that really, really helped clients a lot. And so sometimes we didn't have to talk at all. We could just um, help um, engage that parasympathetic nervous system through acupuncture and sit quietly and tune into the body. And that that was actually really therapeutic and helpful for them. So, yeah. And it's been a long journey. I mean, that's been now 10 years of, of, of figuring that out myself and constantly building on new skills, new understandings, which I'm really grateful for because at least the world of psychology um, uh, around has kind of been on board with that. So it's kind of been, there's been a lot of access to information where people are saying, yes, like, let's talk about that. The intersection of, of the mind, the body, the physiological experiences. And and I, I would actually add to that, that the mind body is actually still quite limiting that what, what most of the world who are dealing with healthcare professionals and dealing with clients and patients, what we need to be addressing is mind, body, spirit, emotion. Yeah. Because emotion, uh, you know, like we were talking about the, the, the book before we started recording here, the body that says no, um, emotion has a powerful effect on our physiological state. Mind has a powerful effect on a physiological state. Uh, going through a spiritual crisis can have a powerful effect on a physiological state, but vice versa as well. The physiological state can affect our emotions, can affect our stress, can affect our spirit. Um, Not a single one of these entities lies apart and is unaffected by the others. It is, it is a inter interconnected web. And so to isolate it to mind body, we're, we're still only addressing two when, when most humans have more than those. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. I I wholeheartedly agree with that. And um, I mean, in, in, in my training, we were always taught the biopsychosocial model and then, and then add, add in the social work element. We always talked about the structural model as well. I actually teach a class on the biopsychosocial model versus evidence-based medicine and how the two naturally conflict and yet ultimately feed each other to be better, but how in their most basic version of what it means um there's natural conflict and yet as soon as we go beyond the basics and we go into a deep understanding of both biopsychosocial and evidence-based medicine the two complement each other more than anything else mm-hmm. but it but it does take a broader understanding of the two terms to see them as complementary mm. yeah i was just saying earlier this morning um to my student we were talking about therapeutic approaches. And I said, I am really the, a, the, a different therapist for every client. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I was saying, you know, there's this, I've learned along the way to develop this intuition and to, oh, what, what, what's the word intuition? Why is that getting to you? We'll, we'll get back to it. Okay. Okay. We'll I have a back. whole we'll 30 minute back. Instagram feed on that, that I just, We'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. We'll go back to it in a second. Okay, 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 okay. Um, so there's just this, and because I can't, I, I call it intuition because I, I, I don't know how else to name it, but I mean, I, I guess it's an accumulation of experience and skills and, 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 and tapping into 
like the, like really looking at the individual. So so checking my own biases about what this person needs, what I think they need, and really listening. And and then as we were, you know, like what we were talking about, asking questions about their life, about their history, about their circumstances, about what they value and what's most important to them. And allowing all of that information to guide where we go next yeah, and exactly. how to help them. And um, I have some people who at, you know, are, are quick to admit, look, I'm not going to do the work. <laughs> yeah. You can give me homework. You can, you can tell me I should do this or read this or what. I'm not going to do the work. And it's like, cool. All right. So let's go with that. And, yeah. uh, and I'm in it's private practice and yeah, I'm in private practice and I have a couple of patients who they'll come in and they'll be like, uh, just fix me. And I, I hate that. I'm not a fixer, yep. but at the same time, they'll be like, I don't have the time. My lifestyle is X. Yep. I have the money. I don't care how much it costs me to do it. And I, I'll be honest and say, you'll pay off my mortgage before you end up getting healthy. And they're like, that's fine. I have the money to pay off your mortgage. In which case, boom, I, I will see them every week. I for will, the rest of life. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's patient informed consent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so you're giving me intuition, intuition, the only reason, the only reason I, I cringe a little at the word intuition and, and this may or may, some people will agree or disagree. That's fine. Um, I'm, I'm really not a fan of the word intuition. And uh, I started not becoming a fan around it. Um, Isaac Asimov uh, once said, the word intuition is easily used to mysteriously describe ignorance. Okay. And for me, the idea that I intuitively know something takes it's the power not away. Valuing, I get what well, you mean. Well, it, it takes away the power of the other individual I'm communicating. It would be either a patient or a student mm -hmm. of ever being able to duplicate what I just did. And as a teacher, my entire intent is to help people duplicate what I'm doing. Totally get it. And that. so yeah. for me, when you started saying the accumulation of knowledge, that for me is the correct term of what intuition is. Intuition is an accumulation of experience and time and uh, put together into practical use. Yeah. That's what intuition is. And the hard thing is, is that when we use the word intuition, and I've seen it in so many classes where I was a student and I'll ask a question or somebody else would ask a question and this teacher would just say, oh, intuitively, I knew to do that. Well, but what, what good does that do me? Right. I can no longer replicate the good benefits that I saw occur from that behavior. Yeah. Um, it, it gives me no sense of being able to accomplish it. Yeah. And it keeps all the power on that individual. And I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. Um, I, I feel you. I, I, in, you know, I don't necessarily have the same um, kind of association with with the the word intuition um but that totally makes sense to me and i actually very much agree with it um and so if in my mind i define intuition as the ability to pull together all of that experience and those skills and apply it in that moment then yeah i mean i i, I that's how i the context in which i use it but yeah no i, I that's I, great I yeah really and the hardest thing is to teach people how to do that but you know, at one point, like, like you were saying, you were talking with your student, at one point you have to say there is a component to intuition that involves time. Right. And, you know, oh, and, yeah. seeing, and that's exactly and what patients. I say. You're not yeah. like, you have to put in the time and it yeah. comes. And I, I actually work had somebody in my, my office today who first visit ever, she had some sciatic pain, debilitating, could barely walk down the stairs. 
I treated her for a total of maybe eight or nine minutes and she yeah. walked out pain-free. Now she's not pain-free. She's going to come back next week and she'll yeah. have symptoms again, but, yeah. but she was very good for today. And when people ask, how did you do that? I go, well, I've seen this sciatic patient for the past 20 years, not this individual, but I've seen this scenario walk into my office at least 300 times. Yeah. So yeah. I know exactly what doesn't work, what makes them worse. And mm -hmm. over those 300 experiences, I figured out these things really help and these things really don't. And that's actually why I started getting involved in the sensory system. Yeah. It wasn't for sciatica, but it was for torticollis. Okay. I, as a manual therapist, I would see somebody come in with a neck kink and I would treat them and I'd treat them for, let's say as a random number, 26 minutes and they'd get off the table and they'd be pain-free. But then I would treat another person with a neck kink, not the same human, so variables and everything's different, but just on averages, let's say I would treat them for 27 minutes and all their symptoms would get worse. Mm. And I was like, what's the difference? What did I do differently in that one minute of behavior? And I realized it wasn't that I did anything different except that I spent more time touching something. And the nervous system and the sensory system at one point said, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy, screw you. Too much. <laughs> and there was no warning in between right. because the nervous system was so hypervigilant. And right. so then as a manual therapist, I started saying, why are massage therapy sessions always 60 or 90 minutes? That's insane. Not everybody comes in with one, a 90 or a 60 minute problem. Mm -hmm. And two, not everybody can get rid of it in 90 or 60 minutes. And it started making me think, the sensory system has to dictate so much more of how we interact with other humans. Um, if somebody comes into a session with you, for example, and you guys are going to talk for a while, you have your quote unquote traditional 55 minutes, or maybe you don't personally, yeah, but let's yeah, say yeah. somebody that they do. And if they come well, in, interestingly, I, I do the same thing. I have 20 minute sessions. I have 60 minute sessions. And I have 90 minute sessions yeah. because I, it, it's so interesting how you're, what you're doing connects with what I'm doing. We're doing really different things, it, yeah. but, but I, absolutely I recognizing along the way, you know, to just, that it can be too much and, and our common ground, again, recognizing the, the, the nervous system, what's happening in the nervous system, both in theirs and in mine. And, yeah. you know, um, and, and what, and, and how do we, how do we find that harmony? How do we find that sweet spot? And, and how do we start reading the signs when it's too much? So keep going. Tell me more. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting that you talk about that. Cause that goes, I, my original, you know, when I went to college back at Champlain, it was in special, uh, so uh, special care counseling. And one mm, of the big things yeah. in special care counseling is they teach you observation. Yeah. And observation is, is so key, reading body language, reading the said and the unsaid. It's easy to say, I understand somebody's body language when you put your elbow in their butt cheek and they clench up and they yell. That's easy. Yeah. But when you barely brush the skin of their fingers and you see a twitch, that's hard. And, and again, there's a, there's a component to time to that, but really it's, it's, it's removing yourself from the scenario and seeing yourself more as, okay, I'm here for this individual. They are paying to spend time with me. They are here to be with me. I'm not, I don't get to get their money. I get to treat them. I get yeah. to be with them. Yeah. And in that process, you really have to remove yourself as the center of attention. And that's, yeah. that's not easy for everybody to do, but it's one of the things that makes observation uh, a key component. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that's, that's it, a tough, tricky, tricky thing. And, and I think it really, the, the, 
that really applies to a lot of the helping professionals that I work with who are, are trained in talk therapy um, or are doing, you know, frontline kind of clinical work. And one of the um, things we talk a lot about is imposter syndrome and how they get this sense that they need to solve problems and they need to be experts. And so they're, the, when these professionals are connecting with me, it's because they themselves are noticing signs of burnout or compassion fatigue, and they're finding themselves, you know, less confident in their work. And so we always start there of like, just, just remove yourself as the center of attention. Uh, my clinical supervisor long, long time ago used to tell me, you know, you are not the one that knows you must refuse to be the one that is in the know. And she used to say that this was really pivotal in my work with clients was that she used to talk about how my role is to create this echo chamber, this safe space, and that it's not all about you providing information, being the wise old one that has all the answers. That in fact, when you play that role, you make people feel even more broken. It implies if I am the one who knows how to solve your problem, then you're the one who is incompetent to solve your own problem. Exactly. And 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 even though maybe there's some 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 good things happening and some change and some shifts, we're not getting down to the root of that where somebody is uh, is empowered. Um, sometimes that word gets me going a little bit too. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but uh, well, so I'll leave it for now. Um, but uh, but yeah, and then tying in all the things we've already talked about, it just doesn't really consider all of the the, the spiritual, the emotional, the psychological, the physical, um, and them knowing themselves and their experiences more than anybody else. And so sure, we're over here like you, you're, you're literally like, you know, through manual manipulation, like you're, you're, you, there's a role that we play here. Um, but, but really, it's about creating that safe space for healing to happen. Right? And the interesting thing that you mentioned there, I, I love is that, you know, like the not being the person who knows everything. And yet, there's a lot of science out there that shows us that the more a patient is educated, the more likely they are to recover, mm -hmm. at least when it comes to manual therapy. Okay. So if they know uh, more about how their body moves, why their body moves, why they're in pain, um, they'll have a better understanding that this is normal. They don't get as much guilt around it and that there is a pathway out of it. But it is a very fine balance between I'm going to educate a patient yep. on what their condition is or what it is that they're feeling or how it is that they can improve their lives versus I'm telling them I know what's wrong with them. And it's one of the things that I've really removed from my practice, I'd say in the last eight to 10 years is having the confidence to say, I don't know. Now, again, that takes, it takes a long time in an industry to, and, and I will say in the massage therapy industry, especially we are by far the least, some of the least educated people inside the science industry. I mean, that is a just well-known, and I'm, if any listeners feel offended by that, I would say, I'm sorry, but I'm really not because the truth is, is we are undereducated. We are just, it's that simple. 
And so there's an inferiority complex that comes with that lack of education where when we want to sound professional with other healthcare professionals, we'll often try to be the God complex. I know everything. I know how to do this. I know how to do that. I know how to fix this. And I know this and that. And it, and I, I, I fell into that category for the majority of my career. And I'd say in the past eight years, I've really moved away from that. And I've come to a place where now I'm, I'm questioning I'm more interested in what the sensory system does and how it dictates so much of our daily behaviors without us paying attention. I'm, I'm interested in neuroplasticity. I'm interested in what's going on in the body, but it doesn't mean that I know what's going on in the body. And oftentimes it tells me what I don't know. It just, it doesn't tell me what I do know. <laughs> and a good example is, um, have you ever heard of myofascial release? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so very famous massage type for a very long time. Well, I mean, back in 2000, I believe it was 2008, Robert Schleiber, researcher in Germany, showed quite conclusively that the amount of force it would take for a manual therapist to create a myofascial stretch yeah. would be unbearably painful. It's okay. like 60 kilonewtons of force held for two to five minutes nonstop, which is a lot and very unpleasant. And yet there's this myth that we are able as manual therapists to stretch fascia. When in reality, scientifically, we probably can't without causing debilitating pain. It doesn't mean I don't do myofascial release. It means I no longer say I'm stretching fascia because the technique has still offered a pain-free experience to thousands of patients. So I'm not going to stop doing what gives them a pain-free experience, mm -hmm. but I'm going to stop explaining it in a way that I know to not be true. Yeah, and it yeah. took a very long time and a lot of confidence to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why it's helping you. I'm glad it is, but I don't know why. And it right. gives the, it doesn't necessarily give the patient a sense of power, but it definitely gives them a sense that I'm not in power. Yeah. Yeah. That I'm not telling them how to help, help themselves. Yeah. 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 Language matters, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I've always taken that. Well, uh, hold on, retract that. Not, I have not always taken the approach. I also in my later years of practice uh, now, much more comfortably and confidently take the approach of um, of saying I don't know, or 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 saying, okay, let's talk this out together, let's explore mm -hmm. this together. You know, mm -hmm. um, I, I'll take take what I know, and you take you know, which is you know, years of experience working with other individuals, maybe with similar situations but not identical. Yeah. You take what you know. And, and I'll also, you know, maybe we'll also even do some work around um, developing some of that self-awareness because that, I mean, that, that really most of the time is my starting ground. And I don't know if you can relate to that with your clients too, but um, of just, we, we call of just, it kinesthetic awareness. Okay. Right. Self-awareness would be more, yeah. Well, self-awareness would be more the it and the ego and kinesthetic awareness is this is the end of my fingertip. And if I close my eyes, they'll touch. Right, 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 right. Versus they miss, or I can't touch the end of my nose. And there are a right. lot of humans who can't, or you say, what's your knee feel like? And they're like, I've never felt my knee in my life. Mm -hmm. Like they're not mm -hmm. internalized in their body. And we call it yeah. kinesthetic awareness. Well, but it goes very much with, with self-awareness. It's so, just a physiological component to it. Yeah, I was, I was visiting my osteopath the other day and, um, he was asking me about pain and levels of pain. And I was having such a hard time describing it. And, and then he was like, well, can you do like the, on the scale of one to 10? And I'm like, 
I birthed three children <laughs> like with, so without I'll, drugs. Like, I don't yeah. know how to, it's so I'll relative. give you a great example. Yeah, I'll give you a great example. Well, the first thing is you just use the most important term. Yes, it is relative, but your 10 can be different from mine. Right. It's not standard, but like when a client, when a patient comes into my office and it's the first, and it doesn't matter if it's their first visit or it's their 10th visit, I still ask them the same question. They have to describe to me zero to 10, what's the level of discomfort, meaning 10 is a hospital and a five is a grimace. So right there, it means it's relative. What would send you to a hospital might not send me to a hospital or what sends me might not send you. So the 10 is relative to your own personal experience. And the five being a grimace is also relative. But secondly, they have to describe duration, intensity, type, frequency, what causes it doesn't cause it what get rid of it is it burning achy numb tingly sharp dull uh, is it a stretch is it a stiffness is it a tightness and they really the first thing that we end up doing when we describe that type of question is you force the client or the patient to become aware of their pain yeah there's a doctor at the university of arizona uh, dr schlemmer um, who published a really interesting article on how humans' natural instinct is to shy away from pain. Yeah. And yet shying away from pain creates a distinct disconnect between our experience of that pain and and not and, and being pain-free. Yeah. And most of the Western culture has dealt with medicine in a way of getting rid of pain. You're gonna take a pill, it's gonna stop your pain. You're doing something that's painful, stop doing it. That's the old adage, right? The old joke, don't do it if it hurts. Um, Most of the medicine or medicinal approach is ignore your pain or get rid of your pain or or try not to address it. And the first thing- Or take a pharmaceutical that will will mask it. (laughs) It it doesn't mean the injury isn't there causing pain in your body. You just can't, you are not aware of it anymore. And everything that you're saying- take just add the word emotional pain and 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 you're doing the same thing that i'm doing right when i I talk about getting people connected to their pain yeah and when i talk about clients with my pain i'm not ever talking about physiological not not necessarily exactly and one of the key components well yeah one of the key components we talk about with a lot of clients and patients or patients is that if you were to imagine your life as a cup and it's filled with liquid of some sort beer water whiskey, scotch, whatever you drink, okay? It's a big cup. Your daily life, let's say just, you know, feeding yourself, taking care of yourself, driving. uh, If you have a family and you happen to take care of them, taking care of your family, uh, being a good human being or a bad human being, whatever it is, on average fills that cup about 40 to 50% full, which means you have anywhere from 60 to 50% room for more information on that given day before you feel overwhelmed. Mm. Chronic pain or acute pain will also fill that cup 40 to 50%, which means if you experience chronic pain on a daily basis or you're in acute pain, your cup is instantly, the moment you're conscious is 80% to 100% full. Now add to it a detour on your way to work. Right. Add to it a fight with a spouse. Overflowing. Add to uh, stubbing your toe. Yeah. Yeah. Add it to having to bend down to pick an object up if you have low back pain. (laughs) Right. Now you're overflowing. And the problem is, is that when you overflow for an extended period of time, 
there's a law um, behind the human body called biotensegrity. And it's a law that dictates a lot of our neurological and instinctive behavior. And one of the laws on biotensegrity is that if you, if you can perform an activity or behavior with the fewest calories possible, you will perform that activity with the fewest calories possible. And that repetition of the behavior that consumes fewer calories will create thicker neurological stimulus or synaptic behavior that makes that behavior easier to do. And because it gets easier to do because it's habitual, mm -hmm. you will then consume fewer calories to do it again. Yeah. Which means positive or negative behavior, talking addiction, good or bad, euphoric yeah. or negative, doesn't matter. It becomes easier to do because it actually consumes fewer calories, calories neurologically to do. Exactly, yeah. So in order to do something different, you have to actually actively consciously use more calories. And in a, in, in nowadays, we don't see it as a problem because we're a calorically excessive world in the West. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the world is still calorically deficient. And evolutionary-wise, the human beings, our instinctive nature is still to be calorically deficient. We still think we're low on calories all the time, like when we were hunter-gatherers 10,000 years ago. And so if I want to go and do a new behavior... I have to grow a new neurological pathway yeah. that becomes so dominant that it now becomes the easy behavior. Exactly. Yeah. And in the process, the cup that is 80 to hundred percent full, if you always take the easy way out, the easy way out, your cup stays the same size, mm -hmm. which means if you feel overwhelmed, like you were talking about earlier about having to slow down because your body was giving you the signs of burnout, your cup is a finite size in that scenario, but the information coming into it is infinite. Mm -hmm. So what I talk about with my clients is switch it around. Don't empty the cup out because sometimes you can't empty the cup. Uh, COVID is a great example. I'm Nobody's, glad you said that. Yeah, exactly. No one's getting rid of COVID. Yep. The anxiety behind it is present. Yeah. And then anxiety is not going away. Mm -hmm. And so Instead of trying to say, I'm going to empty my cup out by go meditating in the woods and being calm on my own and try to you know, empty my life out, just grow the cup. Yeah. Yeah. The window and, of tolerance, as we call it, right? Like, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the, this idea that like there's there, it, it, I, a lot of people ask me to do presentations on stress management and I find so much of existing information about stress management is about reducing stressors. <laughs> And it's, and it's, it's like, so I'm like, I call BS on that. That is so ridiculous. And again, like use the pandemic as a perfect example, right? How are you supposed to reduce this stressor? So when I approach it with my clients and in workshops and training, I talk about two approaches. One is let's increase our window of tolerance. We're dealing with stress. That's our reality. So let's, so, so how can we tolerate that stress and what can we do uh, to uh, bring some balance to our nervous system to prepare our minds and bodies to be able to address that stress. And, and I'll, I'll come back to another point uh, that I think is kind of a little bit more philosophical and a little bit more, well, even spiritual, that is my point of view on how we view stress. I think that matters as well. The other part is about the balance is we can tolerate stress as long as we balance that, that experience that when we're really talking about the sympathetic nervous system going, yeah, okay, show, show time. I'm going to respond to this demand of life. 
And then, and then what is naturally supposed to happen is this, is this, is this, this a, a time to recover from that experience, right? And the, the, interestingly enough with your cup analogy, I also use something kind of similar. So I'll, I'll add, add on to it in that um, basically picking up a glass of water for most of us would be a simple task, something fairly easy to do. And then if, and then what I love is I use the same, same analogy, but when we're talking about the history of trauma, I say, imagine now picking up a glass of water. Everybody thinks it's quite simple, except for the person who has a pre-existing injury. Call that PTSD, call that anxiety, call that pain, call that chronic stress, call that complex trauma, whatever, right? Parkinson's. Right. So it's like, you know, then it's like bringing in again, that biopsychosocial structural model talking about how people's histories matter when we are asking people to do certain things or uh, manage stress a certain way and anyway, backtrack back to the cup, pick up a glass of water. It's not that the glass of water is heavy in and of itself, but if I ask you to hold that glass of water now for hours, days, months, doesn't matter that the glass of water isn't a heavy object it becomes heavy the longer you carry it right and so again we live similar to what you were saying you know we live in a society where you know we're just we're just constantly in this chronic stress state because we're always doing we're always two steps ahead we're always we're very task oriented. We're very outcome oriented. You know, I'm making generalizations, but in, you know, this, this is the kind of stuff that I work with individuals a lot about. Right. And we just don't make room for, um, the recovery work. And then even when there's time, even when there's a little bit of space, even when the opportunity comes up, we're so exhausted. And what I, and what I talk about is oftentimes when the nervous system says, Ooh, I can relax now. Cool. It goes into this, it overcompensates. It goes into this forced recovery state. And so it's not, it's not even really a choice. Now you're not choosing to rest. You, you had no choice. You were forced to, it is a collapse. And, and I see people in this, in this, in this cycle, I myself have been there. Right. And, and, and can be there again. I, I feel, I, I, I feel it. I know the patterns now. I know my warning signs. And so I can kind of regulate as best as I can when I feel that, that chronic stress state coming up. But yeah, it's that, it's that, you know, outside of the window of tolerance, too much stress for too long and all the pain it causes in our life, physical, emotional, in our relationships, how we perceive simple tasks how we perceive ourselves and you're, um, you're describing such a an exact point when when we talk about overwhelm you know in french we say enervé, and it's got the word nerve right in yeah, it yeah because most people who experience chronic pain yeah. if they live at 99.9 percent or 100 percent, they actually aren't in pain yeah the moment they go overwhelmed yeah. the nerves that are going to get stimulated are the ones that are used out of habituation the most frequently. Mm -hmm. And those nerves happen to be used so commonly that they elicit discomfort. Yeah. And so what happens is something non quote unquote painful will occur in their life that will overfill the cup and it will begin to elicit a painful response because the nerve that is the most easily stimulated 
happens to be the one communicating discord not communicating because that's not the correct stimulating discomfort because pain is not stimulated in the nerves Dr. Mosley, who is a, a researcher in Queensland, uh, Australia, who has a really great YouTube video called um, Why, Do, Why Do Things Hurt? A really great, really, really, mm, really funny guy, too, talks about how um, um, if something scratches or hurts your skin or something like that, um, that's not painful. It becomes painful when we perceive it and then we interpret it as threat. And the threat is what elicits pain. Yeah. So when we get overwhelmed, the reason we're going to have pain is that we're beginning to perceive threat. And that threat is threat is not physiological. Exactly. Yes, if I get bit by a spider or a snake, that's a physiological threat. But there's an emotional threat. I feel yelled at. I feel depressed. I, I'm about to get in a car accident. And there's threat there's a pandemic. from pandemic. <laughs> exactly. My there's boss so many uh, needs me to do this. There are deadlines. How am I going exactly. to, when am threat I going is, to do the laundry? Uh, it, it's it's so much more complex these days, right? Threat, threat is multidimensional. And because threat is multidimensional, pain can be stimulated from multidimensional components. But what happens neurologically is that as we stimulate that pain as a habituation, because it happens more and more frequently, yeah. then what we do is we make that cycle more easily stimulated. So now you have pain more easily, even though the behavior may not be painful. And this is where a lot of manual therapy goes wrong. And the tough love theory goes wrong in that I'm going to offer you enough treatment that's painful that I'm going to overpower your pain signals. And that there is a scientific approach to that. The whole no pain, no gain theory has been debunked, but there is a component to uh, the neurological system where it gets overwhelmed and its defense is to shut down. But it's very rare that we're going to elicit that much level of discomfort. And so this whole theory of tough love or stimulating the system so much, all it really does is associates discomfort with that. What should be a positive experience is now perceived as uncomfortable. And so touch becomes unpleasant. Love becomes unpleasant. A hug becomes unpleasant. And threat is now perceived in positive reactions instead of only negative things. Um, And that's where when it comes to stress, it's an important distinction. And And I feel like you probably have a similar approach in that when we talk about stress, most humans will see it as a negative thing. But when I talk about stress, I'm talking about working out. We call it you're stressing your muscles. That's not negative. Yep. It's a positive workout, but it's making love is stimulus. It's stressful to the nervous system, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but most people would associate it as a positive experience, but getting in a car accident is stressful and it's a negative experience. So stress is simply information perceived by the brain. Yeah. Um, and in any moment when you get overwhelmed with it, the response is going to be discomfort. And if enough threat is perceived, painful experience. Yeah. So bear with me here, cause I'm going to talk out an idea in how just what you were talking about, I believe is essentially how I describe the experience of compassion fatigue. So compassion fatigue is not very well-defined, but I think it can be defined in the way that you were just describing it in that we become overwhelmed and the defense is to shut down. Um, Helping professionals uh, deal with a constant inflow of negative information and um and so can i put a caveat there and that just dealing with information because it may not be negative it may just be overwhelming but yes thank you and i and what i want to do is i want to backtrack to use the word overwhelm because 
really, I mean, yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we're all exposed to information and again, how we interpret it, it, it can vary. Helpers are exposed to, and, and again, you know, jump in if you, I love how we're like, we're, we're dissecting words here and, and being curious about our associations with them. So um, the user usually, the, the word I usually use is suffering. We're exposed to the human experience. We're exposed to, we connect with individuals because they are in struggle. They are overwhelmed or they are suffering. Um, ultimately, I mean, we could even just put that under the big umbrella of, of stress or trauma. You know, the definition of trauma being that uh, the, the amount of stress or this, this experience is overwhelming my ability to cope with it. Anyway, all that to say is um, helpers are exposed to this secondarily, the other people, other, other people's experience. And through that constant awareness, that constant connection with it, it happens often very subtly. We don't notice it happening, but there's this switch that goes off. And when I'm talking to helpers, they're often saying, you know, like, I don't know when it happened, but I, but I'm, I'm hearing these stories now and some of them are just tragic and like, I'm not reacting. Like where, where's my emotion? Where, where's my responsiveness? Like things that used to, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, obviously as helpers, we, and this is the, the challenges that I always say, we, we, we come almost perfect the skill of compartmentalizing our own emotional responses that we get so good at it, that we, we repress it, repress it, repress it until we can't even connect with it anymore. And that's yeah, the challenge. Transference and countertransference. Exactly. Right. And, and if we, and if, and, and through, if we are not constantly working through it, processing it, regulating it, becoming aware of it, sitting with it, then it just becomes this background thing. And it happens so frequently, so often that we become desensitized to the emotional response. So and I, have a, yeah, I have an ethics class that I, that I have been mulling over for the past, I don't know, probably six or seven years that I've never put together that I'm quite confident I'll have to put together one day and that I should, but I'll, I'll give you essentially the gist. The reason I've never put it together is because most classes in continuing education have to be a minimum of two hours. And my ethic class would be five minutes long. And I would be like, okay, now go figure it out. And, and I'll give you the gist of it. It's quite simple. Let's pretend we're at a convention. Okay. And you can do this in your classes if you want. Feel free to take it. Um, and you're all sitting around. You've never met anybody. So you all have a name tag on. Okay. And the first thing we're going to do is everybody's going to close their eyes and we're going to take our name tags off and we're going to put them in the center of the circle with our eyes closed. And then someone's going to come along and mix up all the name tags and then keep your eyes closed and you're going to grab a random one and you're going to put it on. If it's your name, you keep it. If it's not your name, you put it back in the circle. That's it. Replace the name tags with emotions and you just figured out how to be close to someone without being an ass. If it's your name, <laughs> you hang on to it. If it's not your name, you are aware of it, you address it, you say the name, yeah, and you just put it back. Yeah. And when you go home at night, you bring your name with you. Yes. The only downside to this is that you have to know who you are in that scenario and you have to know what your emotions are. And I think most people who develop that callousness you're describing, I and this could be opinion based. I don't know if there's any research behind this. It's definitely I don't have any of the research, so it's really opinion based on my part. 
but I would say have, have a poor self-awareness of their own emotions or they're fatigued to the point where they're unwilling to address their emotions. And, you know, right now in Quebec, we're going through a major problem with that with the nurses, you know, like they're overworked. I don't know what it's like in Ontario, but I know in Quebec, they're overworked, mandatory overtime. They're about to lose 17,315 days because of the vaccine thing, um, mandatory vaccine for healthcare professionals. Um, And so they're overwhelmed. And so even if they wanted to take time to not be callous, when do they have it? And yeah. so there is, there is a thing of before going into the industry, should it not be base education in all healthcare from nurses and acupuncturists and massage and psychologists to doctors and, cert- and anyone in between, should it not be base education that you have to have an awareness of self, yeah. which most, most programs, they, you know, they don't exist. It's, it's yeah. not part of it. Well, Troy and I ended up talking for another hour and a half beyond even this point. So I decided that this would be a good place to end this episode. On this point, this remark that Troy was making about how important it is to develop self-awareness as a helping professional. I don't care what field you are in. This idea that this needs to be essentially a prerequisite and, and then an ongoing practice uh, in our work as helping professionals, I think is so profound, so important. And one of the number one responses I have for individuals who are trying to improve their psychological health to manage their own discomfort, dysregulation and pain in the field. We have to know ourselves As Troy and I were talking, we were talking about how pain is relative. We have to have an understanding of what is our pain. And that means we also have to have an understanding of what is our wellness. When we have a sense of what it feels like to be regulated, to be living within our capacity, to be aligned with our values and our principles and what is important to us, then when we move away from that and we end up becoming dysregulated, uncomfortable, overworked, overwhelmed, when we find ourselves in pain, whether that be emotional, psychological, or physical pain, then, and only then, when we become aware of it, when we name it, then we can work our way back. We can heal or ask for help or reconnect or or problem solve, whatever we need to do, it begins with our awareness, our awareness of our pain and our awareness of what it feels like when we're not in pain. And if we're going to show up for other people in a helpful way, then we have to learn the art of helping ourselves. And self-awareness is a huge piece in that, along with self-compassion, and it's a practice. It's something that we must do frequently and we have to value it. We have to prioritize this work on ourselves, the getting to know ourselves, the staying familiar with ourselves. Now, this, is, this, is, this is as much of a part of the work as all the other things we do in our roles. So I think that's a nice point to end on. And right away, I'm, I'm going to upload the second piece 
definitely a condensed version of the rest of this interview with Troy. Stay tuned for part two, where Troy gets real with a poop story. And we dive into the conversation of vulnerability. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did.